0: So what we want to do is to learn how to settle back into the moment instead of toppling forward or rushing or anticipating, can we settle back and receive this teaching? Can we become one with each moment of experience? one of the famous Mahayana Sutras, discourses. It said that the Buddha was sitting on the top of a mountain called Vulture Peak outside of Rajgir in India. He was surrounded by the assembly of monks and nuns and lay people. The Buddha came into the assembly and sat down sat silently, and after a few moments, held up a flower. it said that one of the great disciples, Maha Kasapa, smiled. That's the sutta, that's the discourse. The Buddha holds up a flower, and Maha Kasapa smiles. If we can understand the flower and the smile, the whole of the Dharma is revealed in that. And the Buddha held up the flower. In that flower, he was demonstrating how forms conditioned by various causes, are constantly changing. In the holding up the flower, we see the nature of beauty and the nature of decay. In the flower, we see the nature of attachment and the nature of suffering. We try to hold on to the beauty of the particular form. As it changes, subject to various conditions and causes, then we suffer. In the holding up the flower, we also understand the emptiness of phenomena. and the suchness of phenomena. Emptiness means that there is no core, no kernel, no essence, which is the flower. Rather, the flower is the coming together of various elements, of various forms, with no central core to it. It's an essential emptiness. And at the same time, we appreciate The suchness of it. Suchness is a phrase that's used a lot in the Zen teachings. To express. Just the isness of each moment. Free from description. Free from evaluation. Free from interpretation. How can we really describe in a way that captures it fully, how can we describe a flower, describe a color, describe a smell or a taste? The concepts that we use can capture the fullness of the suchness of that experience. So when the Buddha held up the flower, there was the emptiness and the suchness, the beauty and the decay the truth of suffering when we become attached. What we have to say is that in every moment of experience, in every sight, in every sound, in every thought, in every image, in every sensation in the body, the Buddha is holding up the flower. We're receiving this discourse in every moment of our experience. It's the endless expression of things just as they are. And so the Dharma reveals itself to us in every moment that we pay attention, with every object that we become aware of. And so all of the traditional 84,000 discourses of the Buddha are contained in this flower. It's no wonder that Mahakasapa smiled. So what we want to do is to learn how to settle back into the moment. Instead of toppling forward or rushing or anticipating, can we settle back and receive this teaching? Can we become one with each moment of experience? We hear a sound, we see an image, we feel a sensation. Can we be so settled back that we become the awareness of that particular experience, that particular object? In the seen, just the seen. In the heard, just the heard. In the sensed, just the sensed. In the thought, just the thought. The suchness of each moment is what we are. And so our practice is to learn how to settle back and become this process of change. When we learn this, and it's really the art of meditation, that art of balance, there gets to be a great playfulness of mind. We begin to practice with what Thich Nhat Han called the half smile. It's the smile of Mahakasapa. It's expressed nicely in a poem that Suzaki Roshi wrote on his sixty-seventh birthday. As a butterfly lost in flowers, as a child fondling mother's breast, as a bird settled on the tree. 67 years of this world, I have played with God. And the language is very interesting. As the butterfly, as a child, as the bird settled on the tree, we become one with each moment's experience. Not a separation, not a duality. And so for 67 or 53 or 29 years of our life, We are playing with God, playing with the Dharma, playing with the reality, the suchness of each moment. When we settle back in this way, when we play with God in this way, play with the truth of each moment, we come to a place, we open to a place of a deep balance within ourselves and a sense of the rhythm of experience, the rhythm of life, the rhythm of nature. Rhythm has to do, the appreciation of rhythm has to do with the full awareness of change. When we can settle back and allow the change, allow the process of change to unfold without interfering, without pushing the river, then we establish ourselves in the rhythm of experience and the rhythm carries us, just as in any activity in music and sport and nature. The rhythm carries the experience when it's not interfered with. And in that, there's a grace and there's a harmony. There's a balance. It's expressed very well in an old Chinese phrase. It says, sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, winter came and it got cold. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, thoughts arise and pass away and sensations come and go and images appear and disappear and the whole world is manifesting. We don't have to pull the grass up to make it grow. It grows all by itself. In this attitude of sitting quietly doing nothing, we open up to, the Taoists call the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. It's just the full range of experience. We're not choosing, we're not selecting The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. But you see, there's strongly conditioned patterns of mind of liking this and not liking that. And so what we do in our practice is this art of listening, art of becoming one with the natural rhythm of experience, of phenomena. There's an important discrimination here to make, which was expressed by Chuang Tzu. who was an old, one of the great Taoist sages of China. He said, non-action is not inaction. So sitting quietly doing nothing, letting the spring come and the grasses grow, does not mean inaction. It doesn't mean not being engaged in the world. It means non-action. That is a mind that is responsive rather than reactive. Because in a reactive mind, a mind that's reactive, judgmental, motivated by clinging and grasping and condemning and aversion, there's no balance, there's no ease, there's no openness. We're just acting out old habituated patterns of greed and aversion. Non-action means that we're coming, that our actions are coming from a place of understanding. That we're settled back into the moment. We're allowing what's there to arise, to be there. We connect with it. We respond to it in a balanced way. It's the difference between equanimity and indifference. There's non-action and inaction. Inaction is like indifference. We withdraw. We don't care. We're unengaged. We're disconnected. Non-action of mind, this non-reactiveness of mind, is like equanimity. And Equanimity is a factor which you will appreciate increasingly in the days to come. (laughs) Equanimity embraces it all. Whatever it is that arises, it's not an indifference, it's not a pulling back. It's that mind of balance, of responsiveness, that can deal with whatever it is that's arising without reactivity. And so this is an important place of understanding to come to in our practice because it enables us to be engaged in the world, to be engaged with our experience in a full way without losing that sense of rhythm, without losing our balance, without toppling over. Gary Snyder is one of his Zen teachers, said that in dharma practice there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. You sit and you sweep the garden. And it doesn't matter how big the garden is. We sit and we manifest. And we manifest our understanding... In a small arena, in a large arena, it doesn't matter. There are two things in Dharma practice. To develop the understanding of emptiness of phenomena, to manifest that understanding. Sometimes this manifestation takes some unusual forms. A story that many of you have heard before, but it expresses so well the creativity of response that's possible, free of certain models or images that we may have of spiritual practice, happened with Sharon in India when she was practicing. She had been in Calcutta returning to Bodh Gaya and on the way to the train station in Calcutta, she was in a rickshaw with a friend, and this man on the dark street started to pull her out of the rickshaw. And it was quite frightening. And with quite a bit of disturbance, they managed to get to the train station. She returns to Bodhgaya, and she's telling Manindra, one of our teachers, this whole story. And he's very interested to know what happened And finally, when she comes to the end of the story, he turns to her and he said, oh dear, with all the loving kindness in your heart, you should have taken your umbrella and hit that man over the head. (laughs) That's what's necessary sometimes. Non-action does not mean inaction. Sometimes we have to take our umbrellas and... But what we mostly forget is the first part of the statement with all the love and kindness in our heart. If we can do that, if we can really connect and respond to what's happening, the range of response, many, many different different skillful means, different skillful responses. The power of the Buddhist teachings, and I think perhaps you've gotten a taste of it in these months, has to do with the power and discipline of simplicity. The practice is so simple. It's not easy to do, but it's very simple. Being aware in each moment of what's arising. Simply being attentive. And in that attentiveness, the whole of the Dharma is revealed to us. It was expressed by one teacher, he said, sit and know you're sitting. The whole of the practice. Sit and know you're sitting. Walk and know you're walking. Reach and know you're reaching. Stand and know you're standing. So simple. Just to be with what is actually happening. And so we come back again and again to this simplicity. It's important not to create models for it. To have a bit of a sense of humor with it. At one point, Sansunim, Korean Zen master, who will be coming during Integration Week to give a talk, he's quite a wonderful Zen master. And in Zen, like in Vipassana, there's tremendous emphasis on paying attention to what you're doing and doing one thing at a time. So one day he's sitting at his center in Providence, eating breakfast and reading a newspaper. And his students come in and they're horrified. You know, because when you eat, you're supposed to eat, and when you read, you're supposed to read, and you do one thing at a time and you pay full attention. And here he was eating breakfast and reading a newspaper. So they confronted him, you know, you're this great Zen master, what are you doing? (laughs) Uh, And he said, it's very simple, when you eat and read, just eat and read. (laughs) (laughs) Being simple means really being simple, not complicating things. This simplicity leads to a very great spaciousness in our minds. We're not so crowded in by our ideas or viewpoints or judgments or evaluations or interpretations, whether it's of things in the world or experiences in our practice. Can we be simple? a phrase from the Taoist teachings, which expresses this spaciousness, the phrase which says, free and easy wandering. And for me, it captures that quality of ease in the mind when we've settled back into the rhythm of moment to moment experience. There's a free and easy wandering. Things are arising and passing by themselves. We don't have to resist. We don't have to pull them along. We just have to settle back and make space. And so the simplicity of dropping back into the moment is actually what creates this space. It creates space in our bodies. It creates space in the mind. It creates space in our relationships to other people in the world. In this spaciousness, we can go from a place of evaluation and interpretation and reactivity to phenomena whether it's within this mind and body or external things, we can go from that uptight place to a add to an attitude of tremendous interest and appreciation, to a sense of willingness or interest in discovering what each experience is like. And again, in these months of practice, I'm sure you've had the experience, at times at least, of things that previously the mind felt closed to, or condemning of, or very attached to. Sometimes there's just that shift in the mind, and we begin to investigate, to explore, what's the nature of this? What's the nature of this pain? The pain actually can become interesting. What's the nature of anger? What's the nature of fear? We begin to get um, a truly a kind of love for all the experiences that arise within us because it's an exploring nature, it's an investigating nature. This can only happen when we're not busy evaluating and judging and comparing, when we take take each experience for just what it is, the suchness of each one. One of the verses from the Tao Te Ching says that when a wise person hears the Tao, they practice diligently. When a mediocre person hears the Tao, they waver. When a foolish person hears the Tao, they laugh. And if such a one did not laugh, the Tao would not be the Tao. We're all of them. Sometimes with a wise person practicing diligently, sometimes with a mediocre person wavering, sometimes with a foolish one laughing. And if such a one did not laugh, the Tao would not be the Tao because it's all part of us. And so can we we do this dance with an interest and a a sense of appreciation for all of these parts rather than getting involved in self-judgment and self-criticism and ambition just to see all the parts, the foolish part, the mediocre part, the diligent part, What this means is taking responsibility for our own experience, not blaming external conditions or other people for the different things that we might experience. And you see this strong tendency of mind to blame, you know, the, the people who are coming in late or the radiators that are making noise or the rooms that are cold, or this or that, and we're always, or often, looking or blaming the external condition instead of taking this interest in what our own mind state is about. I was in a relationship once with a friend, one of of her favorite lines was, stop making me feel aversion. And of course, in one sense, I was probably doing all these things which were the cause of the aversion. But on another level, it was missing the point. <laughs> because when we have these feelings, you know, arise in ourselves, the really interesting part of it is not so much the, con- the ostensible conditions which gave rise to it. The really interesting part is how we're relating to it in our own minds how are we getting hooked in to the aversion or the fear or the dislike or whatever? That's where the wisdom lies for us. And that takes the sense, certain sense, a certain amount of spaciousness. So we have enough space inside to take a look, to be interested, to appreciate the foolish one, as well as the wise one, inside our own minds. It sounds so simple. Settle back, be in the moment, let spring come all by itself. <laughs> How come we are not smiling like Mahakasapa? <laughs> What are the obstacles that we find in this simplicity? One class of obstacles has to do with these very deeply conditioned patterns of expectation and resistance. These two forces keep us out of the moment, keep us out of this settling back. If we're busy resisting, pushing things away, not liking, I don't want to be with this, I don't want to feel this, then we're in conflict, we're in struggle, and we can't have that ease of free and easy wandering. And so we have to take a look at the resistance and begin to recognize it as a first step, and then see if it's possible, okay, let me feel this, this is okay too. And on the other side, The mind that's filled with expectation which is always anticipating the next moment, toppling forward into the next moment. We can see it in the sitting practice, even when the body is sitting still, we can be watching the breath, not only not even anticipating the next breath but perhaps anticipating just the end of the very breath that we're on, always just a little bit ahead. There's a few lines from a wonderful poem by Wordsworth, where he says, late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. And those lines (laughs) reflect so much the quality of being just ahead of ourselves, just behind, just dragging behind, holding on to something that has happened, that has happened in the past. Late and soon, getting and spending, we lay waste our power. Because our power lies in the connection to the moment. The power lies in that spaciousness, in that stillness, in that simplicity. And so one of the things we learn, there's been There's been many, many opportunities, I'm sure, in this time of practice to see, to refine the awareness of these habits of mind, of resistance, of trying to keep something away, and of expectation, of toppling forward. Another obstacle... Another big obstacle to our living this simplicity, the strength of this simplicity, are all the kinds of self images that we create. Based on the concept of self, of I, not only is there that identification at various moments with various experiences we extrapolate from that and build a whole superstructure of self-image, of how we present ourselves to ourselves, to other people, to the world. And these self-images get us in trouble, big trouble. There's a a Taoist story of... a tribe of monkeys, and a Chinese prince. And the Chinese prince went out with his group of followers to go on a little monkey hunt. And they went into the forest, and all the monkeys fled except for one. And this one monkey was very clever. He sat right on the edge of a branch, and as the prince... Shot his arrow at the monkey. The monkey very deftly caught the arrow in midair. So he was kind of very proud of himself. It was a good trick catching the arrow. Then the prince ordered all his followers to shoot at once, and they killed the monkey. When we're acting like that monkey, you know, look what I can do. Right? That kind of Posturing, based on some kind of self-image that we have, it puts us into conflict. If I can find something, I'd like to read it. So a person is crossing a river, and an empty boat collides with their own. Even though they may be bad tempered, they will not become very angry. If an empty boat collides with our own, we don't become very angry. But if he sees somebody else in the other boat, then this person will shout to, for him to steer clear. And if the shout is not heard, will shout again and again and begin cursing, all because there is somebody in the boat. And if the boat were empty, would not be shouting and not be angry. If you can empty your own boat crossing the river of the world, no one will oppose you and no one will seek to harm you. If we can empty our boats, empty our boats of the sense of self and all the projections of self-image. And there are so many. We see it in our worldly pursuits the way we relate, the way we dress, the way we behave, the, the posturings of the mind. We see it in spiritual practice. We begin to create all kinds of spiritual self-images. I'm so humble. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna never look up and never make or whatever, certain costumes. Different things, if they're done to project a self-image, it just creates conflict. It creates separation. When I first started practicing, I had a bad case of it. I was a little innocent, <laughs> but it was a bad case. I was so enthusiastic when I, first, I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. And I was going to these discussion groups and just badgering these poor monks with questions. I asked more a lot of what happens here is just personal karma coming back. (laughs) 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 Because I drove these monks crazy (laughs) with my questions. I had studied philosophy at college. The first time I went to them with this copy of Spinoza under my arm, and I was going to debate with them about Spinoza and the Buddha. and <laughs> So finally, out of desperation, I suggested that, uh, that I start to sit. And so I get all this paraphernalia together and I, all this stuff, and I sit down for five minutes. Uh, I set my alarm clock. I was so excited, though, even by that first five minutes, because what happened in that very first time was just seeing the possibility That just as there was a way to look outward, there was also a way to look inward. And that seemed such a revelation to me at the time, that there was actually a path that led to an inward exploration. I was so excited by all this, I started inviting all my friends over to watch me meditate. (laughs) You laugh, but I'm still doing it. (laughs) That's what IMS is about. (laughs) Self-images, worldly self-images, spiritual self-images. It's really good to begin to see them, to begin to let go. One, one big help for me in letting go of these models came about through studying with various teachers because I saw that each of the teachers that I studied with was so different in their style, in their personality, in their way of behavior. Studied for a long time with Goenka and he's this very successful businessman, very active, engaged. Worldly, very charismatic, tremendously powerful. A tremendous presence. And I studied for a long time, many years with Manindra, who's almost the total opposite. He's kind of this little guy dressed in white, running around, curious about everything, also asking a million questions. He visited America once. We took him into a post office and you know all the notices on the post office wall? <laughs> he started reading all of these notices. <laughs> he, he has very little money. And got an Anagarika somebody who has renounced the household life. Really a tremendous scholar. N- not at all involved in business uh, operations. Very different, very different personality, different style. Actually, there are a couple of Meninga stories which are very alike. (laughs) One time he was running around the bazaar buying some peanuts. And he has this, he's very, actually he's very interesting to observe. Because he's very speedy. He really moves very quickly. But what's interesting is that it's moving quickly without rushing. And that was a very good lesson just to watch him move because there was never that sense of a toppling forward as we so often do when we're moving quickly there was always that sense of really being settled back and at the same time really speeding around anyway he was he was bargaining for some peanuts in the bazaar and he could really drive these people crazy you know bargaining over a few cents worth of peanuts and finally somebody one of one of you know, Students of his came up to him and said, Manindra, you know, you're know, you always talking about being simple and being easy. What are you doing driving this poor guy crazy? And Manindra said, the path of the Dharma is to be simple, not a simpleton. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a difference there. And Manindra manifests that difference. Took a lot of care with these little details. Deepama. This woman in Calcutta, again, totally different from either Goanka or Meninga. One of the greatest inspirations in practice, her practice was so deep. She has had so much suffering in her life. She was married at 14. She she subsequently lost her husband, lost two children. Very sick. For, For years at a time, she was in bed, sick, unable to move. She describes her practice at the center in Rangoon, where she was so weak, she had to crawl on her hands and knees to get up to the meditation hall. Can you imagine the kind of of dedication, the kind of perseverance and the strength of mind? Tremendously deep levels of realization, both of vipassana, of of insight and of samadhi, all all the jhanas and samadhi practice and psychic powers and the tremendously powerful mind, and so empty. She manifest this wisdom through two such inspiring qualities. One was the quality of true humility, and this quality was it's expressed in a, in a very skillful phrase. Somebody described humility, true humility, not as a posturing, but as the absence of anyone to be proud. And that's the feeling one has with her. Totally simple, because there's no one there. And yet there's this tremendous power, tremendous strength and wisdom, and also this tremendous love. Basically, she goes around blessing everybody. No matter who comes into her field, when she was leaving for India and getting on the, going on the ramp, she started blessing the plane. You know, it's, that's her mode of relating to the world. This tremendous quality of love. Very different in the way she was. than go than then ninja. Upandita is another whole trip. Totally different again. I mean, he's this heroic effort, you know, and You practice without regard for body or life And if you die in practice, it's fine. There's no problem with that (laughs) (laughs) What being with all of these teachers One of the great lessons was there is no one way to be it's the same wisdom, it's the same compassion, it's the same metta and yet it manifested very differently. That's tremendously freeing for us. Because then we realize we don't have to be like anybody else. We don't have to imitate, we don't have to have any model. In dhamma practice there are two things. We sit and we sweep the garden. We practice and we manifest, and we're all going to manifest our understanding in very, very different ways, in different styles. And that's tremendously freeing for us when we realize that. It allows us to settle back and be ourselves. One of the reflections that is common to all the traditions of Buddha Dharma, and which I think is particularly helpful to reflect on at this point in the practice where you've had a deep experience of what's possible, of the possibility of training the mind, of opening the heart, and in a transition time to leaving. It's the reflection on the precious human birth. That actually in the whole vast cosmology of beings, and all the different comic possibilities, the one that we have at present is so precious because we have come in contact with the Dharma. We've come in t- contact with this path inward. We know how to come to a place of understanding of ourselves. It's very rare, it's very precious. And so if we can hold that in our beings, hold that reflection, the preciousness of our circumstances, it gives tremendous impetus for us to continue our practice not only in intensive retreat, but in every aspect of our lives. Not to create a fragmentation between this and that, between retreat and outside of retreat. Because the Dharma is not fragmented like that. I'd like to close by reading something else from Chuang Tzu. Great knowledge is all encompassing and small knowledge is limited. Great words are inspiring and small words are chatter. When we are awake, our senses open. We get involved with our activities and our minds are distracted. Sometimes we are hesitant, sometimes underhanded and sometimes secretive. Little fears cause anxiety and great fears cause panic. Our words fly off like arrows as though we knew what was right and wrong. We cling to our own point of view as though everything depended on it. And yet our opinions have no permanence. Like autumn and winter, they gradually pass away. We are caught in the current and cannot return. We are getting closer to death with no way to regain our youth. Joy and anger, sorrow and happiness, hope and fear, all of these like music sounding from a bamboo flute or like mushrooms arising from the warm dark earth. They continually appear before us, day and night. No one knows whence they come. Don't worry about it. Let them be. How can we understand it all in one day? That's it for a few minutes. The men and women in whom Tao act without impediment harm no other being by their actions. Yet they do not know themselves to be kind or gentle. The men and women in whom Tao act without impediment do not bother with their own interests and do not despise others who do. They do not struggle to make money and do not make a virtue of poverty. They go their way without relying on others and do not pride themselves on walking alone. While they do not follow the crowd, they won't complain of those who do. Rank and reward make no appeal to them. Disgrace and shame do not deter them. They are not always looking for right and wrong, always deciding yes or no. The ancients said, therefore, the men and women of Tao remain unknown. Perfect virtue produces nothing. No self is true self, and the greatest one is nobody.